Welcome to the Shotguns and Sugar podcast, where we take a deeper look at topics you don't learn about in school. I'm Dr. Bukloski, and I enjoy exploring different parts of history. The transportation revolution was as important to the industrial revolution as were the agricultural and technological revolutions. During the late 1700s and into the early 20th century, massive advances were made in moving people and goods from place to place. These included the construction of steamboats, canals, road improvements, and rail systems. The automobile and heavier-than-air transportation came later, but not as much later as most people think. From the earliest settlements in the New World, the most common form of transportation, outside of walking, was water travel. Since the original settlements were all along the coastline, ocean-going vessels provided the easiest way to get from one settlement to another. As Europeans moved inland, they generally used canoes or flatbed boats to follow the rivers and streams. As the population grew, we developed roads to speed communication between towns that were not located on the same stream. The Dutch established one of the earliest inland towns in 1614. Fort Nassau was built about 130 miles up the Hudson River from New Amsterdam to trade with the Algonquin, Mohican, Iroquois, and other native tribes in the area. Within a decade, the trading post grew into the town of Beveridge. In 1664, the English acquired the Dutch colony and changed its name to New York. They also changed the name of the town to honor the Duke of Albany. In 1797, Albany became the capital of the state of New York. Because the city was surrounded by rough country, road travel was difficult to say the least. Traveling by boat up the Hudson from New York City was a four-day trip. Land travel was even longer and more dangerous, so the state began to issue monopolies to motivate individuals to come up with ways to speed transportation to the inland part of the state. In 1787, Robert Fitch was awarded a 14-year monopoly to develop steamboat travel along the Hudson. Wait, didn't Robert Fulton invent the steamboat? Who is this Fitch character? Well, in fact, a Frenchman, Claude-Francois Dorothée Marquis Du Geoffroy de Bon is generally credited with inventing the steamboat. He traveled up the Seine River on one he built in 1783. Robert Fitch was the first to build a working commercial-grade steamboat in the United States. His ran between Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and Burlington, New Jersey in 1790. However, a patent issue cost him his investors and he was forced to close his business before it ever really got started. So, where did Fulton come into the picture? Stick with me on this. In 1797, Fitch sold his monopoly to a partnership that included Robert Livingston. Livingston was one of the wealthiest men in the Americas and had strong political connections. He was, in fact, a delegate to the Second Continental Congress and was part of the committee that drafted the Declaration of Independence. In 1801, he was appointed Special Minister to France with the assignment to acquire New Orleans for the United States. His negotiations resulted in the Louisiana Purchase. He and Fulton met soon after he arrived on the continent. Livingston liked Fulton's ideas about ways to improve on French steamboat designs, and in 1807, he and his partners built a Fulton-designed boat that traveled up the Hudson River from New York to Albany in just 32 hours. The boat did not have a name. It was just titled Steamboat. It was two or three versions later that it was named the North River Steamboat, the North River being the local name for the Hudson. Some ten years later, well after the boat had been retired and Fulton passed away, one of Fulton's biographers, Cadwallader D. Colden, called it the Claremont, and the name stuck. 
With Livingston's financial backing, Fulton is credited with launching the first commercially successful steamboat in North America. Four years later, another of Fulton's steamboats, the New Orleans, opened the Western Rivers to steamboat travel when it steamed its way from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, down the Ohio and Mississippi Rivers to New Orleans. Steamboat travel on the Mississippi made New Orleans into one of the busiest ports in the United States. Between 1820 and 1860, as many as 550,000 people immigrated to the American West through New Orleans. In fact, during the antebellum period, New Orleans was the busiest port in the United States for immigration. It was also the primary port for importing and exporting goods for lands along and west of the Mississippi. This was even true before the advent of steamboating, but the ability of the steamboat to travel against the current increased its importance as a North American port. Steamboating was not Albany's only claim to fame when it came to early transportation technologies. The poor travel conditions between New York and Albany that prompted the Fulton Steamboat Revolution reflected the abysmal transportation network of the entire nation. There were few roads, and almost all were private roads that were muddy in the winter, spring, and fall, and hard as nails in the dry season. Freight charges ran as high as $100 per ton. Jesse Hawley learned this lesson the hard way when he tried to bring a couple of tons of flour over the Appalachians from Albany to Rochester, New York. By the time he arrived at his destination, he had to charge so much to break even that he couldn't sell enough of his product to pay his debtors, so he ended up in prison until the debt was paid. While he was locked up, he wrote a series of essays proposing the construction of a canal from Albany west to Lake Erie. Although he was not the first to make such a suggestion, for some reason his ideas caught the attention of the state's governor, who got behind it. But the cost was too great for private investors, so the state sold bonds to cover the construction, making the Erie Canal one of the earliest economic development projects in U.S. history. With Albany as its eastern terminus and just a few hundred miles north of New York's port, enterprising businessmen recognized that such a plan had the potential to turn their town into a transportation hub, and they were right. When it opened in 1825, the Erie Canal was an immediate success. Over 40,000 immigrants traveled west along the canal in its first year. The tolls, which paid off the bonds and covered operation and maintenance expenses, were low enough that a ton of flour only cost pennies on the dollar to transport. It also turned New York into the busiest port on the Atlantic seaboard. The canal carried extensive commercial traffic until the St. Lawrence Seaway opened in 1959. Today it functions as a recreational attraction through the northwestern part of the state. The Erie Canal's success brought ideas for similar structures, one being the Chesapeake and Ohio, or CNO Canal. Baltimore businessmen came up with the idea to gain back port business lost to New York because of the Erie Canal. Originally, it was to run from Baltimore on the east, through the Cumberland Gap, and on into Ohio. But by the time it arrived at the halfway point, railroads had eclipsed the value of canal building, effectively killing the project. That said, the CNO Canal exists today as a national historic park. As bad as the roads were, until after the Civil War, they were the second most used method of travel in the United States. A road permits different styles of vehicles to move people and goods across land. The Jamestown settlers built the first roads in the United States, or the colonies that would later become the United States. They widened existing Native American and animal trails so they could handle wagons. Narrow waterways were crossed by laying split tree trunks across the creek or riverbed. 
If they were shallow enough, they just cut the banks on either side to create a slope into the water and forded the stream. Sometimes heavily traveled roads in town were paved with cobblestones, but most, like inner city roads, were simply dirt tracks. That said, some had rather unusual designs. The road from Boston to Concord through Lexington was lined with stone walls. They were there to help farmers control their stock on their way to market, but that design contributed to the disastrous British expedition to Concord in 1776. As the nation expanded, settlers built most of the rural roads to help them get from their farms to the nearest market city. Because they were privately built, many farmers charged a toll for others to use them. The tolls gave them some ready cash and helped maintain the road. Busy roads were sometimes covered with split logs to help with drainage. These roads were known as corduroy roads because, just like corduroy cloth, they had regular bumps each time you moved from one log to the next. By 1824, road building specifications had improved considerably. Construction specifications for the military road between Memphis, Tennessee and Little Rock, Arkansas required it to be 24 feet wide and clear of all obstructions except for stumps. They were to be no more than 24 inches high. The center of the road was to be 18 inches above the ground around it, sloping to 6 inches above grade on the edges. Marshy areas were to be built like corduroy roads, with logs split and laid flat side up across the roadbed. Causeways were to be built every 75 feet to permit water to move around without flooding the road. Streams and creeks were to be bridged with 3-inch thick planks that had handrails on both sides. Another, more advanced form of road building was the use of the macadam system. In this system, layers of increasingly fine gravel are placed over the dirt roadbed. When pressed together, the gravel chunks locked their adjacent rocks, forming a firm, relatively smooth roadbed. In-town methods, like cobblestones, were longer-lasting, but hardly as smooth as macadam roads. The same time they were building the military road in Arkansas, the government was also funding the nation's first interstate highway. Congress authorized the National Road in 1803, and construction started in 1811. It ran from Cumberland, Maryland, through western Pennsylvania and what is now West Virginia, to connect Ohio to the rest of the country. It was paved with a macadam-like system. In an era where there was no power equipment, men using sledgehammers pulverized stone into little chunks, spread them on the dirt roadbed by hand, and then rolled them smooth with an iron roller. By the time the road reached central Illinois, railroads had outstripped its usefulness and Congress dropped funding for further extensions. Road maintenance was funded with tolls collected at collection stations spaced every 25 miles or so. But with all this discussion about road designs, recognize that as late as 1920, less than 1% of the roads that existed in the United States were paved. Without the power of the internal combustion engine, travel, be it by road, river, or canal, was relatively slow. It was also limiting. Moving anything of great weight, like the coal used to power factories and provide heat for urban dwellers, required water travel, leaving most of the nation without access to industrial growth. A transportation method was needed that had the power of steam and the flexibility of a road to really help the country grow. Enter the railroad. The concept of rail service was not new. As early as 660 BC, a six to nine mile long portage machine made of wagons with wheels following grooves in limestone rock drug boats across the Isthmus of Cornus in Greece. As early as the mid 1400s, cable based systems were found in Europe. Known as funiculars, they moved people, goods, and animals up hillsides along wooden tracks. 
The inclines on Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's Mount Washington are a great example of these types of trams. But horse, oxen, or even humans provided the power to move these early railroads. About 1801, a British miner named Richard Trevithick began experimenting with steam boilers that operated at higher pressures than those James Watt and his predecessors used. As part of his experiments, he connected a steam engine to the wheels of a wagon and pulled a dozen or so partygoers to the next town, creating the first horseless carriage. In 1804, Trevethick developed a steam engine designed to work on a set of tracks laid years earlier to haul iron from Penadaran Ironworks in Mether Tideful about 10 miles to Abersine. The owner was so impressed with Trevethick's work that he bet a friend 500 guineas that his steam engine could haul 10 tons of iron and steel along the tracks. Trevethick's steam engine successfully hauled the iron, plus horses, wagons, and some 70 iron workers. His engine operated at the blazingly fast speed of 2.75 miles per hour, taking over four hours to reach its destination. In helping his boss win the bet, Trevethick's trip represented the first use of high-pressure steam in a commercial enterprise. Although Trevethick's steam engine hauled goods in support of heavy industry, English rail services grew mainly from its ability to move people. The first intercity railroad to use steam engines ran between Liverpool and Manchester. It was designed by George Stevenson and opened its doors in 1830. Nine years later, there were about 1,000 miles of railroad track under construction throughout Britain. By 1859, there were over 6,600 miles of railroad tracks throughout the country. Rail travel was not one inch behind England here in the United States. In 1828, a consortium of Baltimore bankers and businessmen established the first railroad in North America. Known as the Baltimore and Ohio, or B&O Railroad, it was designed to compete with the Erie Canal. The company also constructed ironworks to build their own engines and cars. Their first engine was small, but adequate for the job. Known as the Tom Thumb due to its shape and size, it was powerful enough to outrun a horse at full gallop. This is the railroad that put the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal out of business. The B&O served the country through the mid-20th century as one of the largest railroads in North America. Sir Henry Bessemer's process for steelmaking had a huge impact on the rail industry. First patented in 1854, the Bessemer process permitted the manufacture of hardened steel rails that could carry tons of raw materials and thousands of people for miles and miles in relative comfort, especially when compared to walking or the back of a horse. Steel rails lasted 10 times longer than iron ones and could carry much heavier weight. The 70-ton weight of a typical locomotive in 1910 would have crushed older iron rails to wee beans. Steel rails permitted reliable long-haul railroads and contributed to the development of switchyards. George Westinghouse's invention of the air brake in 1869 simplified rail operations and allowed for longer trains. Before his invention, a brakeman had to run from car to car to set each car's brakes manually. Westinghouse's invention permitted the brakeman to apply the brakes to all the cars at the same time, shortening both the braking time and distance. Together, these transportation networks, steam travel, canals, road improvements, and railroads provided the basic infrastructure needed to drive, pun intended, the Industrial Revolution that turned the United States into the most powerful economic engine in the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shotguns and Sugar podcast. If you'd like to learn more about this topic or access a list of resources used to create this podcast, 
check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com.